Well, thanks everyone for coming out tonight. Uh, I'm really excited to have this team. Uh, how many, well, first of all, how many of you have seen this film? Okay, great. I, 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 I haven't seen it. You haven't seen it? Hello. <laughs> <laughs> I'll say that um, I, I'm really excited because this creative team that we have here tonight, it has an amazing history of working together, starting back with Cloverfield. And um, we were chatting before tonight here, and there's so many great stories, so many great anecdotes, so many great memories that come out of these projects. Stuff that doesn't make it onto the screen, but I think uh, my goal for tonight is to have a great conversation about process and decisions, creative decisions, and really have an opportunity for these guys to share some stories about, you know, why the film turned out the way it did, and, and obviously how sound and music influences uh, uh, the story. So. First, I just want to start with you, Matt. Um, thinking about thinking back about you know a project like this, you have a huge lead up. You have um, many months of writing, many months of shooting, and even a longer post schedule. When you are in the various stages, and how often does sound and music? How often do you think about these guys? That at some point, I'm gonna have to start getting them involved. Um, from the beginning, you know, when uh, with the the movie took three years to make, and the first year uh, was writing, and when Mark Baumbach and I were writing the script, I mean, I always, whenever I'm writing, I always think of sound, and I don't know that, I don't know if I've ever specified the music, saying, like, music up, I don't think I do that, but I, I certainly am thinking about Michael, um, and, um, you know, I think what happens is, you, you kind of try and think, you try to write in such a way that it feels like, when you're reading it, what it what you hope it's going to feel like when you're watching it. And then um, these guys basically get in, involved uh, right at the beginning of, of post. And, um, and then, the, you know, somewhere once I have a cut, Michael comes and looks at the movie, and that's where that begins. And then the process takes many months after that. And we, you know, it goes, it goes from there. But, you know, they've even, you know, they've been involved very early on, oftentimes. But on this one, that's how it works. I love the story that I've heard about you guys getting together in Michael's office, and there's this kind of display of toys of Planet of the Apes stuff. Mike, for you, what, how far back? Give us a sense of how long you've been a fan of this, this story, of these characters. Probably since I was eight years old. I mean, I was obsessed with Planet of the Apes. I would... I would... <laughs> embarrassing I would follow <laughs> my father around the supermarket and they had a tiled floor and if you put your foot on this row of tiles you skip the row and put your foot on the other one you walk just like Cornelius <laughs> <laughs> so from you know from the old show and all that so I would follow him around like that at the store and he would look behind me and just, I'm sure he was just like oh my god just get what you need and let's get out of here um, so I was a huge, huge, huge fan of, of this, and I still have all my toys from when I was a kid. I have this, I have everything. Um, and I remember you on the front, on Dawn, I didn't really know what he was gonna be working on next, and he just texted me a picture of. Well, what happened was, during Let Me In, in Michael's office, uh, where he's got, you know, he's got, he loves movies, so he's got like, hey, here's a lightsaber. Hey, let's put on some Darth Vader masks. I have one for you, too. And, um, and then he had all of the dolls that I had when I was a kid, which were from the TV show. And um, he had the treehouse set, 
and um, you know, Dr. Zayas and all that stuff. And I was like, wow, you've got all the stuff that my mom threw away. I wish I had these. <laughs> and actually, Michael actually got me some of them when we did when we did the movie. But um, Michael was the first person I called. I knew that the one thing I knew was that the person who would be as excited as I was was Michael. And I, I said, apes. I don't remember what I said. What did you, I do? The first thing you, you right before you called me, you texted me a picture <coughs> of. Caesar. Of Caesar. That's right. Yes. That's exactly right. And I was like, no. Yes. And no. Then you said, you just made my day. Yes. Yeah. Michael, what can you say about the influence of composer Jerry um, Goldsmith? Oh my God, I, I I'm a huge fan of Jerry Goldsmith's work. I love it because it's 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 everything. It's both melodic, it's experimental, it's all of those things. And if you remember, you know, the first score for the very first Planet of the Apes, there was no real melody in that movie, and it wasn't an emotional score by any stretch, but it was a score that stuck with you, you know, and he would do things like prepare piano, he would he would grab, you know, have the pianist just grab the inside strings and do weird things like that, and he'd have the, the violinist play it in a very strange way that you would normally not play it, usually makes them very angry because their instruments are very expensive, <laughs> and uh, so he was very keyed into this idea of being experimental. I remember when Matt and I started working together, it was early on that it was it was going to be an emotional movie. I mean, you know, we talked about it, and I remember after the first time I saw it, I very very I cried, and I was just like, oh my god, you can't score this the way they did the very first movie. You can't because we need this is these characters are us. They're people. You know, they're 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 they're, they're I felt such empathy for them, and there was no way I could have done it just by banging on things. Not that that's not a part of what we did. We certainly did weave some of that in there, but it became a much more uh, almost an operatic type of story than than what the first one was doing. And for you, uh, Will and Doug, what can you say since doing uh, Dawn of the Planet of the Apes? There's a lot of learning, a lot of kind of challenges. Unexpected that this was a big film for you guys at dealing with mocap, dealing with a lot of aspects that you don't necessarily deal with in live action. What can you say? What was learned from the, la the last one, and what you wanted to maybe change or do better this time? Well, Matt's movies are always, whoa, you know, Matt's movies are always, there's always, a, there's always challenges in Matt's movies. Um, and on this particular one, the big challenge was the R&D for the voices of the apes. Um, you know, the, Doug can talk about it more specifically because he, he did days and days and days of work to get the sounds of months and months, months and months and months. <laughs> Um, years. <laughs> He's still working on it. Yeah. Um, I would say the difference between that film and this film was that this film we had hundreds of apes in many of the scenes in, in a way that we hadn't had in the previous film. Um, and not only did we have hundreds of apes in these scenes, they all had to sort of move as one emotionally, uh, which is hard enough to do with you know crowds of people. But when you're assembling all these hundreds of sounds together to try to make the sounds of hundreds of apes, and they have to somehow move emotionally within the scene from beat to beat, that was something that, I mean, I think it was, it was a real process. <laughs> well, the ape crowds are, uh, are a huge part of it, and then there are the individual ape protagonists, and both of those have their own sets of problems. Like, you know, the ape protagonists typically are the voices of the actors. That's the, I'll cut to the chase, that's what we did at the end of the day. We used the 
voices of the performers in sync with their, in, uh, you know, from the set, almost, well, uh, as much as possible, which was a lot. And and we tried, we experimented the, the, the years between the two shows, it was almost two years of work. Um, the, the, we started out not having much of an idea. The, uh, as um, Matt has just reminded me on Rise, which was the first of this trilogy, the eight voices were almost all made of eight recordings of chimpanzees and gorillas and orangutans, which were from zoos and the wild. And only Caesar had his own voice, uh, which was pitch shifted and so on. So when we got to, he had one word of dialogue in that movie, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, three words. <laughs> no, wait. He says, no, and Caesar is home. So that's four words. Four words. <laughs> okay, so we have four words. Uh, then in, but he advances in terms of his linguistic skills by the time dawn begins. And there's a lot more dialogue. So the, uh, we had to, we had to figure out how to use Andy Serkis's voice and, and all the other eight actors' voices because they were so good. They, they knew how to uh, make convincing sounds and they had the right emotion and they... The emotion was the biggest part of it. I mean, the thing that Michael's talking about with empathy, yeah. the, the first version of the movie that Michael saw didn't have any effects in it. Right. It, was the, it, it was the actors, it was Andy Serkis and all the actors playing themselves. And the process of Doug trying to figure out what the voices would be was, well, these, he's supposed to be a chimp, so for sure we have to use chimp noises, right? And what we noticed was, especially with Andy, that the moment you started putting in chimp sounds, he started to lose his personality and you stopped connecting to him. He became more anonymous. Yeah, and anonymous. so it was a process of some of the performers would have maybe a little bit of some ape stuff put in, but like Terry Notary, who plays Rocket and also plays a lot of the apes, because you can have a performer who plays many different apes and then use them in, you know, with the mocap. Um, he was exceptionally good at acting like an ape. And, and I mean, sound vocally. He was his vocalizations yeah. were great. Very convincing. But yeah. then there was and you'd mix that in with real utterances of apes that are the background apes. So that many. So right. So yeah. getting back to the crowds, we we needed them to seem real. So we put in the sound effects of real apes, and then we had this sort of middle ground, <coughs> the glue that glued it all together, which were the human uh, loop group talent. Essentially, we found we did a lot of casting with uh, different people to try to get actors who could do convincing chimp sounds. Well, and Terry know. helped us actually figure out how to teach the loop groupers how to yeah. make ape sounds. <laughs> so this whole process, we found a small group of actors who basically were trained how to make ape sounds by, by Terry. Master, by Terry. Yeah. And then we would work with them every week for about four hours, because after four hours, they'd blow the voices out. They, they wanted us to work with them on Friday afternoon so that they could go home and recover over the weekend so that they could continue their loop group talent gig on Monday without a broken voice, which was sad. Yeah. So we worked four hours a week for many weeks with these guys. And anyway, they were the glue that emotionally kind of stuck the crowds uh, gave them the emotional nuance that we wanted to add to the uh, chimpanzee recordings from zoos and so on that we had, which we, you know, we had hours and hours of great recordings that Chuck <coughs> and his crew did on Rise. 
of chimps. And so th they're the main body of the crowd, the crowd sounds in, in all these films. And then you did a tremendous amount of recording for gorillas on, and, and, yeah. and, uh, orangutan, right? Yeah. The, the, this film, we went out and recorded, uh, here at the LA zoo, which, you know, zookeepers are so great and they <laughs> love their animals and they want you to appreciate them as much as they do. And so we got in with the gorillas here and the, ch and the orangutan here is really great. You, I recommend you go see them. <laughs> uh, and then I flew to Atlanta and recorded. They have the largest collection of gorillas in captivity in the world. And, you know, you think of in captivity and you think that's bad. And, you know, ideally they would be in the wild, but they're endangered species. And, you know, these may be, this is a good thing that they're trying to research these animals and figure out how to keep them alive in the wild. But anyway, um, <laughs> if they open the doors, the back doors into the back rooms of the where the gorillas live and work, uh, you know, rest, I should say. And uh, <laughs> we got to record them, you know, milling around, you know, interacting with each other, getting fed. And, you know, you got a huge range. And when we walked in, they just all went nuts. And so <laughs> we got nuts. As it turns out, shotgun microphones look like tranquilizer guns. Will, you just set up even this first uh, clip that we have tonight. I love this is beginning of the battle into what is called this kind of Braveheart scene. But what is, and maybe Matt, you can also set up too, that you had a very specific approach of how you wanted to open the film and how it kind of sets into setting up the competing army. Well, it's the one scene. So the thing I really wanted to do in this film, which was different from the previous two films, was I wanted the film to be entirely an eight point of view movie. Um, and so this is the one scene that actually starts that isn't from the eight point of view, although there is an ape amongst this group. But we start with the soldiers and you realize that they're heading toward the apes. And so, um, yeah, I just really wanted it to be an experiential sort of like, I wanted it to feel like a war movie, like we were moving, you know, up this environment and they were looking for our apes. Awesome, let's take a look. It's amazing to see how, when you're talking about um, the emotion of, this is this is the first scene in the film and you expect a big battle scene and but it's quiet. Yeah, I mean, that was, this was the hardest scene to mix. Uh, and the balance between sound effects um, and what sound effects and music and whether or not there'd be music and sound effects or whether or not we pull music, I mean, sound out and then hand over to music and then how we would transi transition back in because the idea was to get into a subjective state. The idea was to become very intimate. Um, and that whole, and, and still understand what was going on in the story. Like the, the whole thing of how many apes we would hear and how that would work. That was, I'd say that was the scene we mixed the most oh, in the yeah. final mix, yeah. right? It was really challenging. And Michael, can you talk about, because the, 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 the moments before this, there's a long buildup of this kind of building tension. Yeah. And then the percussion comes in, the drums come in. But can you talk about, you know, working with the sound team, working with Matt, figuring out kind of the roadmap for a scene being as dynamic as this? I mean, I love, I mean, we've worked on a lot of movies together and, and Will and I worked on movies outside of this, you know, Star Trek and different, all kinds of things. So one of my favorite things is getting to the mix stage. Now, a couple of reasons why. That means I'm done writing. I don't have to do that anymore. And I really feel like that's where the movie is really made. And we can look at it all together because we're working in separate areas. You know, we, 
We'll call each other if we have to, but for the most part, everyone's just trying to get the thing done. So everyone is out in their own world. So when I cut to the mix stage, and I spent a lot of time on the mix stage when they're doing this, and I think in the beginning you were kind of like, oh God, what is the composer doing here? Why is he here? But it's a chance for me to see what they're doing, and then I can, and I, I think you would agree, more often than not, I'm saying... It's always a welcome... It's, an, it's The thing is, when you show up, you're the only person who hasn't been sitting there for 12 hours a day <laughs> listening to the same scene over and over again. So Michael always brings this fresh perspective, which is like, hey, you know, I think we're missing this emotional beat here. Yeah. Or I think, you know, what if we took this thing out? And sometimes that's music and sometimes that's sound effects and sometimes yeah. it's whatever. It's whatever makes it the best storytelling experience you can have. And I am, and they'll tell you, I am so happy to take out music as much as I can because I truly believe that the absence of music then creates a better uh, space for when you do need music. You know, you can't, so many movies, and we all know this, it's just like wall to wall, you know, music, which I feel like that's insecurity, right? You're not being secure about the story you're telling. So a big part of our process is like, what can we take out? It's like, I don't mind recording a bunch of stuff, but what can we take out? Because in the end, the balance between what I do and what they bring to the table needs to work together for the audience. And that's... I think the same goes for the sound effects side, too. It's like, yeah. if, if you can imagine a scene as big and intense as this, if it was 100% sound effects at 10 the entire way through, <laughs> it would be so fatiguing and not... We had that version. And we had that yeah. version. <laughs> right. exactly. There was a version where it was just all sound effects, all music, and everything. And it's just sort of like, it's very assaultive. And you're not, right. you're, just, you're not telling a story. Yeah, right. Usually day one of the mix is, you know, everything faders up and everything is just like, it's like the Max Off commercial. <laughs> and then, you know, what, so of course what happens is you can't hear anything. Yeah. You know, and so there's this weeding process that we have to go through every time. And it's all You're about... directing the attention of the audience in a certain way to what matters. Right, right. And it's often emotionally, right? Yeah. yeah. Emotionally what matters. And we try, we try to anticipate all of that in advance, all of us, of yeah. course. And we, but when we've come together, we have usually too much. Yeah, and so it's a matter of weeding. Which is that. better than having too little. Yes, <laughs> that creates panic. Yes. yes. <laughs> what can you say also just about the surrounds? Because this is a great space to hear a film like this because there's a lot of activity going on all around you and there's intention behind what's going on there. It's not just there, just the film spaces. Maybe you guys can talk about the mix approach and how you use your surrounds, how you spread out music, how you, you know, there's a lot of great technologies that are more immersive and go for it. How yeah, you? well, you know, we'd use Dolby Atmos for the first time on... <clears throat> Dawn with Planet of the Age, and it basically just come out at that point. And I think it was the kind of thing we jumped in with both feet and basically said, okay, how can we use this to make the experience more rich for the audience? Um, but on top of, you know, obviously we're, we're taking advantage of the physical space in the room and all that, but there's so much that you don't even see that you're hearing mm -hmm. in these scenes. You know, for example, when the battle starts and the apes start screaming, you only see two apes, but you hear a hundred. You know, and, and they, it adds this unsettled, you know, like panic to the scene. Well, it lets you know actually the story, which is right. that it seems like there's a couple apes that you're seeing visually, but the whole idea is that that's actually a trench and it's filled with apes. And how do we know that? I mean, there's so much that the sound actually clarifies for you. And um, But in terms of the Atmos at the beginning of this, one of the great things that uh, for me in the mix that we didn't just show you is the very beginning is actually just the sound all around you of just being in the woods and you hear, you can hear like each raindrop kind of falling on the leaves around you and then you start to hear this, the camera sort of moving and there's this very quiet sustain from Michael and you're like, wow, this is a very peaceful way to start. 
that something's not right. And it's just that, that experience, that Atmos, doing that in Atmos really was special because mm. it'd be the kind of thing, like they would go like, oh, well, well, that, we can put that right there. And, and that, the process of sort of dialing it all around you so that you felt that you had this feeling of being immersed in something actually very quiet. It was a. It really set you into a really special kind. Of that was a, another thing that came out of the final mix. Was we started kind of you know, we, maybe a not at ten, but we started at seven, and we realized that maybe this would be more interesting if we started at three. Yeah. You know, and we did. We stripped a bunch of stuff out. We we just turned everything down, including the voices of the actors, and so they're all kind of hushed. And yeah, we even re-recorded some of the voices. Yeah, because the intention of the actors and what had been recorded, not from our actors, but from what the voice actors had yeah. done to fill it in, had was too active. And, and it was like this idea of the kind of like hush. And it was really about getting that vibe. So you got the feeling like, like ooh, like it, we, were, we wanted to feel a little bit like, I think, what some of the stuff feels like in that very almost hypnotic stuff in um, Thin Red Line, where they're moving up the hill and you're actually hearing the grass. And it, there's actually the idea of the environment and these, these just little figures in the environment. I want to mention that this room is Dolby Atmos setup. It's a smallish room for Atmos, but it's a really nice sounding room. And I think the film mix, almost all of the clips you'll see in here are actually from the GCP and are in Atmos. So it's a good And place. you know, it's, it, it's a great format and it gives us kind of a, you know, a wider canvas to work with, but you basically still have to make all the same choices that you would in mono. You know, which is basically, what are you hearing from moment to moment to moment? And mixing, it's sort of this weird kind of um, relay race, you know, where you're sort of handing off from one thing to the next thing to the next thing to the next thing. And if you do it elegantly enough, no one realizes what you're doing, and they think they're hearing everything. But of course, you can only really hear maybe two or three things at a time. That's a great setup, because I want you, what we um, will brought is actually a breakdown of the scene where you, hear, where you hear the raw elements. So this is something that usually you only draw the next stage, but maybe you can set up the different layers and what Yeah, so Tim, if we can queue up the arrow layer demo. So basically the scene we just stopped on, I've got a breakdown of that scene layer by layer, including Michael's music. So we can hear the dialogue as it was recorded on set with the voices that were added in to fill out the soldiers. We've got all the arrows hitting, we've got all the... Yeah, it's a kind of an interesting thing just so you can kind of see the main layers that go into making up a scene and i haven't adjusted the volume level so you'll hear things dip and rise and that's basically us in the mix featuring one thing over another from moment to moment so it might sound a little funny but you'll i think you'll hear when you hear the final result why we did it that way so this is directly after the scene you just saw It's when, it's when you hear all the individual parts and then you see it all play together. It's kind of like when you reveal a magic trick. Like, oh, now I understand how that's done. It's not, you know, as the final mix, you can't really, you know, you don't have, you don't hear the individual parts. Um, what can you say, Matt, for you? How early do you show up on the mix stage? <laughs> what is it like for you to? Well, yeah. the thing about it is, it depends on the movie. On this, like, I, these movies are so intensive. There's so much to do that I end up coming later than I wanted to on this one. Uh, but I like to be there, like, throughout the whole thing, and it's hard like, for me. Like to literally, the whole <laughs> thing. <laughs> I do because it's to me. It's like um. Uh, let me in. Yeah, they whisper to each other. Uh, let me in. <laughs> 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 unless he was in the room. <laughs> and you didn't. 
<laughs> but no, but you know, the thing is, is that there's, there's, because we go through a process, it's like, in a way, look, when I'm on the set, I'm working with actors, right? And I'm working with technicians and we're telling a story. And it's the same thing here. All those choices that happen, like, those are choices that, that take you through what the experience of this movie is. So, in a way, they are, these guys are, in the post-production, like the, the other actors I'm dealing with. Like, they, they're, they're doing things that are emotional. And I'm like, oh, gosh, that, I'm being pushed back in this way, and I don't quite know why. I can't really articulate it. Like, the, this scene that you're looking at, that, the number of times we mixed it is insane. Yeah. It was crazy. But that's how we finally ended up with it. But if I hadn't been there, I wouldn't know what the process was that led to that. So it would be like, going, I don't know, it's too loud. It's too this, it's too that. But by being there, I'd be like, oh, I can you... And, and actually, one of the first things I do when I do come in later than I want to is I say, okay, so you play me something. And I say, now, can you do me a favor? Can you solo me the different elements so I can see what's there so we can have a discussion about something. So I can say, oh, okay, I think it's those hits. I'd love to hear more of that or less of that or, or I'm confused about what we should be seeing here. Let's try and see if we can figure out the story. So we figure it out all together. And, and so I have to be there. It's sort of my job. I mean, for me, that's the way. Well, and the thing that this particular scene, I think what Matt finally realized was that we hadn't mixed it for the preacher character, for his perspective. Yeah. That was kind of the key to figuring out how to approach the scene audibly, was that we needed to be with him. What does it feel like to yeah. him? Yeah, because so that like, was the conception from the script, was this idea that there would be one character who's experienced this, this thing was, who was not an ape, and then Caesar's going to come in, and from that point forward, it'll be Caesar's. But Preacher, this was his experience of being in control and then losing all control and suddenly feeling like he was in the middle of just something terrifying. The, the preceding scene is this waterfall, which was, for folks who have seen, this, have seen the movie, you would think it's a waterfall and you shot on location, but in fact, that's an all-virtual set that you created <clears throat> with Weta, right? The, inter the interior or the exterior? The ex well, the exterior, The exterior right? is real, uh, except for the waterfall. <laughs> so it's, so we're shooting in Vancouver, and it was the torrential rains, and um, we went there, and um, the, fortunately, it's actually good, because the water was so raging, it was washing away our equipment, that was bad, but it made it look like there really was a waterfall there, and then the waterfall was, was fake. And yeah, that's the scene that follows, exactly, yeah. And what can you say when you know that you're going to have an artificial waterfall, and you're going to have to sell this space... This is the worst part, too. Like, this was one of the awful parts of making the movie, too. In terms of finding this, was like, how much waterfall is too much waterfall? Like, they lived... This was the whole concept. Like, the, 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 the movie was was called... Uh, the title that we used in, in when we were making the movie, because um, you always come up with secret titles when you're making a movie so that people don't show up and go, let's go see what they're doing on the Star Wars set, or whatever. So ours was Hidden Fortress, because in Hidden Fortress, um, the Kurosawa movie, there was the princess was hidden behind a small waterfall. So we're like, well, wouldn't it be cool if the apes seemed to have had, you know, the last movie had them build a civilization. And we thought, wouldn't it be cool if they still had this advanced kind of, you know, village that they had built, but they had to do it somewhere that they couldn't be found. So they built a whole thing behind a waterfall. But the practicality of that is that there's a waterfall there. <laughs> and waterfalls are crazy loud. And so I would say to Andy, we'd be shooting on the mocap stage, and I'd say, um, if you're going to say that, it has to be louder. There's a waterfall. And he goes, nah, I'm not going to say that. that loud. That's ridiculous. Said, it's a waterfall. <laughs> and this was the thing. It was really hard for us to figure out when the audience was going to go like, all right, enough with this waterfall. And that was another one of those things where you dial it down, you bring it up. And it took the first reel of this movie, we mixed seemingly for six years. <laughs> <laughs> My 
Michael, what can you say about when you have a scene? This is a pivotal moment with Caesar's family being attacked. Where do you start in terms of tapping into the emotion of what he's about to experience? I mean, you know, my first step is to watch the movie and, and really make note of how everything in that movie made me feel. And of course, that moment in particular is so devastating. And, and yet it's, it's weird because it, it has this balance of sadness and anger. Right? And you have to have both. And, and, and within this film, I don't know that there's a moment of sadness that doesn't have anger behind it and vice versa. You know, And so how do you do both of those things? And that's the challenge of the character too. How do I live with these two things inside of me? How do I do that? So that's how I felt watching the movie, you know, and I take it very, almost like an actor, I take, I have to feel all of these things as I'm writing or else I don't, it doesn't feel truthful to me. So if I'm on a film that I don't connect to in that way, it's very difficult to write music where this film was very easy to write. I just was so connected to the characters. So that's the first thing, connect with the characters. And then I just sit down and I, I try to find what that feeling sounds like. And it's a searching thing. There's no, I couldn't tell you how it happens. I don't really know. It's just a searching thing. And you, you, you know when it's wrong, that's easy to find out when it's wrong. Finding when it's right is the hard part. And that's, you know, what's going through. And, but I'm always thinking about what these guys are doing, even when I'm writing, once I, even once I get through the process, I find the themes, I find that emotional uh, aspect of the, of the storytelling. Then I also have this layer of work where I'm looking at what they're doing or potentially going to do to try and make sure that what I do will live within what I think they will be doing. You know, so there's, there's, there's a lot of uh, facets to the process, but it really does all start with just checking in with how do I feel and how do I get that across to you with music. And for Will and Doug, what can you say about when you first get the scene? It's not obviously visual effects aren't completed. There's kind of a sketch of here's maybe a locked edit or close to locked edit. No. No. Okay. <laughs> and and not only are the visual effects not completed, there are no visual effects. <laughs> so it's kind of like, well, here's the thing. That's going to be a waterfall. I think we need a waterfall, guys. And then you start doing it. So. Yeah. I mean, it's it, you know, it's kind of like staring at blank canvas. Again, it can be a very daunting thing. Uh, so the faster, <laughs> at least I find in my process, the faster I can throw sounds at it then I can start figuring out what's not working, right? right? And it's, I might not be finding the right stuff right away, but at least it's like, okay, let's try something. And I used to, when I first started doing this sound work, I, I would, you know, think about it for so long and it would kill me because then if you've thought about it for so long and then you tried that one thing and you're like, yes, this is going to be it. And then it doesn't work and you're like, God, I'm just wasting days, <laughs> you know, or hours or minutes, whatever. But, you know, the, the idea being, I just find that it, it it's so much better to be able to just throw something up and then react to it. Yeah. Um, then I'm 100% with you with that. It's, uh, you, you know, overthinking, you, if you just start putting things in almost almost at random sometimes is the way to break the jam. And to, because you could, if, if you put something in and you say, you say, well, obviously that's too loud, it's got too much bass, <laughs> and it, you know, it's, it's too smooth. Oh, we need something rough and you know, less spacey or something. So you try that and it's like, well, you know, so it keeps, it's an evolution, but you have to start with something to react to. But before there are visual effects, the sound are the visual effects because what ends up happening is I also have to represent the movie in some way. I've got to react to it. I've got to show it to the studio so that they'll say like, yeah, we'll, we'll authorize you going forward with spending 
$50,000 every five seconds for what it takes to <laughs> take care of just eight. And so when there's no waterfall, I've got to say, like, well, you, when you're watching, how'd you know there was a waterfall? Because they put in the sound of a waterfall. They put it, and who knew what that waterfall was going to look like? And so, and that happens musically as well. It's like, well, we need something, we need a lot of intensity here. And so, you know, the, our, our music editor will work with temp music from Michael's, all of Michael's scores, and try to create a kind of pastiche of, of, of stuff that kind of creates the feeling of the intensity, though what's on screen is just the actors, but often against almost nothing. Yeah, it's great. I think being, being, allowing yourself to be wrong is the best path to finding how to be right, you know, and not to be afraid of making mistakes because that's that's how you learn let's see look at the scene so this is um after the battle they've come back now to their their home and well, well i think we should take a look and then we can talk about it which, which one is this just so they know uh the water waterfall waterfall yeah great <laughs> the waterfall is not real <laughs> I think it's just another great example of sound and music working together. And there's a moment in there where when Woody Harrison fires his gun. That took forever. Okay. <laughs> that was that was that scene. That's by the way, you're bringing back all I know, the most painful scenes. All the hardest scenes. <laughs> horrible to mix. And trying to figure out that transition, coming into and out of music and subjectivity, and how to get from the subjective state. And what I thought was so amazing that Michael had done where the drums were going and we couldn't figure out how to do it. And then finally we were like, well, what if the what if the gunfire that he starts shooting actually is in rhythm with the music? And so that was the breakthrough that finally made that come. And we found that as long as, we, as long as the first gunshot was basically in visual sync, yeah. none of the rest of no, nothing. <laughs> But there was a picture change made in the in while we were making. Yeah, that was the other thing. We looked at it and we're like, "This is never." Because I was like, there was a transition that was never going to work, which was when uh, Woody's character has come upon Blue Eyes, who is Caesar's son, has just killed that intruder, and then the camera pulls back, and you think, "Okay, he's got the upper hand," and then suddenly you see this beam come up, and you're in the back of Woody's head, and you realize, "Oh, that guy's in trouble." Then we cut to this next scene where Rocket attacks a soldier who's trying to get in touch with the colonel, and it, it just didn't work, but we realized that on the mix stage. We kept, I thought, oh, well, that's gonna work when we figure out the sound transition. Yeah. And we couldn't figure out the sound transition. Because was, it was a rhythmic We problem. have to change, yeah, it was. Yeah. It was too, it was cut too tight. Yeah. We actually had to open it up, and we actually had to create a visual effect of the, um, the beam. Because right. uh, oh, I didn't have the footage. Show, right? Because right. what happened was that guy who gets thrown against the wall, he was actually on a harness. Because the idea was to take him and yank him against the wall. And he, there was no one in the room. There was except for him, the gun, and the harness. So the stunt people were pulling him. So he could only walk about a foot. And that was it. And I needed him walking in. So we actually created, because it didn't work on the stage, I was like, I think we have to create a visual effect. So in the middle of that, and Weta did it in like a week or yeah. less time. And then we had it. And you guys put footsteps in. And then we, but we discovered that on the next day. I think, isn't that... I mean, it's not. It was the second to last thing we mixed too. Was this? I think we. You mean we finished it. mixing? That we finished mixing. In other words, we mixed the it. The first thing you started with, and the second last thing you exactly. finished. Exactly. <laughs> we kept. It was awful. It. <laughs> <laughs> it was. This was. That was truly awful. Was I mean, much of the film mixing was a joy. Right. But this sequence. It was a couple was sequences a in particular. Nightmare. Well, I remember from the very first time I saw the scene with you, and you said this scene isn't working. <laughs> and it was your fault. Because the, the sound, no sound yet. The sound of the gun is not right. 
yeah. that was the, is that, that right it was like yeah so we was like we have to fix the sound of the gun so like i think we must have done you and yeah, well, that in the waterfall. Remember how many the waterfall, verses of the waterfall oh sounds? <laughs> <laughs> so you can hear it there, and like where it goes in and where it goes out. And then it was an interesting thing because there was a point at which we'd taken out too much and it lost this elemental yeah. feel. Well, because Michael and... delivered this beautiful, really interesting piece of music for yes, that whole sequence. Kind of, yeah. and my yeah. first pass was like, I liked what you had done so much that I kind of buried all the sound. And I thought that was really working. And then we took a look at it in the context of the real. We're like, this doesn't work at all. Because the jeopardy of the fact that these soldiers were coming into this very elemental place right. and that this conflict was happening, it needed this. But what I liked is that it ended up, by bringing it back, it, it, where there was this great interplay between uh, something really elemental and then it would suddenly get quiet and then you could hear just that little chime or whatever mm -hmm. what Michael was doing. And it was like those contrasts. But that was, that was found over... Centuries of <laughs> and the geography, having a sense of geography from the sound, which changes. The that was that was that was incredibly important too, because there was no set, and the whole idea was okay. So they're supposed to be somewhere. The set that we had that they were walking on was the same set. Like it wasn't very long, and so all we did was we changed the lighting on it, and you had to change the sound, so it sounded more subterranean. Like those guys come in, that's the bottom. It's actually the same place that Caesar's coming down. Because we didn't have that big a set, but we need the sound needed to change and create jobs. Yeah, Matt drew me like a map of like, okay, when they're here, they're like down here, and then when they're here, they're kind of in the middle, and then you know, and it, it really helped me wrap my head around like, okay, well then, you know, we'd be hearing this down there, and then when we're up here, we'd kind of be hearing the echo of the waterfall through that cavern. Yeah, always the proximity to where the opening was to the waterfall at the bottom. You couldn't quite hear it except for a low kind of thrumming. And then as you got closer to it, you could hear actually water. That was awful. The greatest thing about my job, I go to the mixing stage. It's I willingly go. Right? <laughs> they have to be there. So when things get this intense, I'm like, I, I got to go pick up my son. So I'll uh, see you in a couple days. <laughs> you go, but you clearly don't have it. But I'll come back. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The, 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 the thing about this scene, too, with the waterfall is the, the amazing uh, sense of being immersed in that space, yeah. which yeah. is really, really great. And this is a scene where you really anticipated well the music because those trills of the flute or whatever it is, the overblowing, I mean, those, those, those come right great. through, goes through everything. even yeah. the most powerful. And then leaving space thing. between them, too, so that other things can yes. happen, you know? Yeah. 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 Mike, I'd love for you to talk about. Um, when you're on the scoring stage, it's a lot of play, a lot of fun that you have with all your players, but there's a fantastic story of one of your percussionists. Oh yeah, so I, you know, uh, since I started doing this here in LA, I've been working with a uh, percussionist named Emil Richards, who actually played on the very first Planet of the Apes in 1968 with, with Jerry Goldsmith, and Emil's one of my favorite people in the world. So he'll, uh, at the, at the, when we first started on Dawn, he came up to me on the first day of scoring, and he says, hey, Goomba, you know, and uh, he's from Sicily. I'm from Sicily, this whole thing. And, uh, and he said, I got something for you. And I'm like, well, what do you got? And he, where the hell? I got it here. And he goes, I think you'll like these. So, and he hands me, it was really kind of funny at first. He hands me this. And I'm like, thanks. Uh, the mixing bowl, thank you. Thank you very much. And he goes, no, no, no. He goes, in 1967, I was wandering around a uh, hardware store. And he said, I accidentally knocked over a stack of mixing bowls. 
and he goes, and it made this sound. He goes, and I, I, I instantly was like, I, I need to buy all these mixing bowls. I'm buying all of them. He, he goes, I instantly forgot what I even went there for. And he goes, I just brought a stack of mixing bowls. And he goes, because uh, he knew he's about to start recording Planet of the Apes uh, in, in the next month or so. So he brought this, and he goes, here, just listen. He goes. And he used this on the original Planet of the Apes. He goes, I want you to have this. <laughs> and I was like, are you kidding me? I get to keep this to me? This belongs in the Smithsonian. Like, <laughs> you know, part of me was like, Indiana, that belongs in a museum. You know? uh, but it was amazing. So he gave me that and all the other ones. I have all of them at home. <laughs> and then he also gave me this, oh, which is, uh, and he said this, I, I used this on the film as well. If you want to hold it for one second, please. <laughs> 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 so, or this would just happen somewhere. <laughs> 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 didn't even know. Uh, so yeah, so these things were again used on the original Planet of the Apes. So it was just this, this incredible thing. He goes, "Okay, I gave you something new. I mean, I gave you something old. I got to give you something new. Sort of like a wedding." <laughs> and he brought brought this one for uh, War of the Planet of the Apes. He goes, here, I found this for you. And he goes. <laughs> so just really imagine this in a giant room like Fox. So, you know, so again, always looking for crazy fun things to use on the score. And we also brought stuff my son made us when he was... Uh, in what you just... Oh, wait. Sorry. Oh, yeah, it was actually in that scene you just seen where you hear these... In what you just saw. Yeah, what is that? Okay, so... Those are, <laughs> yeah. Oh, these are... They, I was at Home Depot. This is not unlike the other story. I was at Home Depot. And we, were looking for, we were looking for things to make a robot with. I was just... <laughs> Your son was... Yeah, was, my was son nine was nine probably nine age, years right? old. Yeah. yeah. He was nine years old. He's with me. So I'm looking for robot parts, you know, and... Uh, and he's, I see him, and he's across the way, he's doing something. He has these giant long bolts, and he's slipping all of these uh, um, washers onto it, and then he puts a nut on the end, and he's just sitting there shaking it like this. <laughs> and I was like, that's a really cool sound. And I was like, make another one of those. So he made another one of this and bought those. And I said, you want to, we should put these in the soundtrack. We could use these on apes, you know? And he was like, really? So he actually played them on the score. So he came into the room, he played them. He's back there with Emil. I have this amazing picture of him and Emil, who did, you know, who brought me this stuff, playing these instruments. These two guys that actually made some. That's the sound when and Caesar and Woody Harrelson are facing off, and it's going. Yeah, the whole thing. Oh, it's yeah. the Griff sticks. Oh, we call them Griff sticks because my son's name is Griffy, so they're Griff sticks. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. So there you go. Well, thank you so much for bringing them. Yeah. Something that, that I really appreciate about how you approach uh, telling your story is you're not, there's a lot of deliberate, um, just your hold on shots. You don't let the audience get away from it. And um, some of the times, like with, one, with Caesar here, it's that it, him and, and the colonel face to face, and you see it on their face. They don't have to say anything. There's so much uh, information that the audience is picking up. What can you say just about now with the second <laughs> film? What did you learn from the first one of what the actors bring? What the, the unspoken uh, kind of just what you put the audience takes in well what was great on the first movie I had no idea how to make a mocap movie and um, 
I discovered that it was very similar to making a normal movie, except everything after you make the movie in terms of shooting, because then you've got to do, then it's hellish. The post is horrible. <laughs> uh, the shooting is great. And, um, and what was really exciting, first of all, what was great for me was because my style is like, as you say, I don't ha have a lot of cuts, right? And um, normally that is the death of a director's career in a studio because they're like, going, we got to go like this. What are you doing? Yeah. And what was so great was the, the effects are so expensive <laughs> that if you have more shots, it's more expensive. And I was like, whoa, this is so good. I don't, they'd be upset with me if I had more shots. I've got to stay on budget. So it was about 1,400 shots? Is that I don't know what it is, but, it's, but, but normally in a movie like this, it'd be like 3,000. Yeah. And it is, we, we have probably at about half what you would have. And, um, and so that was actually a gift for me because it allowed me to do what I like to do, which is to stay on the actors. It's just that the actors then become apes. And, um, and what I, I think what I really learned was just what an incredible actor Andy was. And it was really fun for Mark and I to write War, having been through the experience. Because see, what Andy didn't know and what I, we didn't know each other. So like I remember him because I'd worked with Carrie Russell and she goes, well, I know he's going to do all these like these shots or whatever, but like I just don't know if he's going to care about the emotion and the drama. And she goes, oh, you don't know that. And <laughs> the thing is, is that that's my favorite thing. And, and I found out that's Andy's favorite thing. And so holding on that character is to, is to watch what Andy's doing. And I don't see Caesar without seeing Andy because you spend a year taking what Andy did, which is incredibly emotional, it's what Michael writes the score to. When he says it makes, he feels this way about a character, he's feeling that way about seeing Andy doing that. And what we do with the animators at Weta is spend a year making sure that you feel the same thing watching Caesar that we felt watching Andy. And they take all these details from his face so that, to me, Caesar looks like Andy, but he doesn't, but he does, because that's how he looks Yeah, for sure. And so I think that's, for me, what was the fun of coming back to it was that I, I finally didn't have to be scared about the mocap. Mm -hmm. And actually, the movie worked, fortunately, for Dawn, so nobody even questioned. I had to, I had to pre-vis and do everything that we threw out on the, on the first time I did it. On the second movie, they just let us make the movie. They kind of trusted us, and it was exciting for me because I got to come back and work with all the stuff that we learned in terms of what the ape should sound like and the music that Michael brought. It was like, oh, are you going to bring back some of those themes? Like, we did all this stuff in Dawn, and you brought some back and then created all new stuff. And it was like, you don't often get the chance to come back and try to tell an entirely new story and yet still be in the same universe and drawing on those things that got you excited in the first place. And that was that was what I learned, I think. Or so many of the characters, Maurice and Bad Ape, and a lot of what there's pivotal moments for each of these characters that, they, that the audience goes through. Um, Doug, I'd love to hear about talking about the evolution of Caesar's voice, because like we said in the, in the first film, there's very little dialogue, and now in the third film, his speech has evolved, and that's also the case with some of the other, uh, with, Death, with, with Bad Ape, which I love, Steve's not saying. Maurice's voice probably evolved the most. The most. I mean, it's interesting, for, for what you're talking about with Andy, I think what we learned on the last movie, uh, which we talked about earlier, was just that we needed it to be Andy. Yeah. But actually, what we did when we were shooting Andy was experiment with his voice and how primitive he should speak. And so the, the ways that are different between Dawn and War in terms of how we speak, we explored that on the set. And actually, even in post, with mocap, you can go back in. And like any other movie where you do ADR and you replace dialogue, here you come in and you can literally re replace the facial expression. So it's like we go on, I have the shot, and it's like, well, God, wouldn't it be good if he said something different here? And sometimes some of the things we found out, like for example, there's a scene where they find this girl 
and he doesn't want to have anything to do with it. He, he just wants to find the colonel and kill him. And Maurice is saying, hey, I, I think there's something wrong with her. She's going to be in trouble. And the line was, let's go. And the problem was we had all the way through to a finished shot, and the, the Caesar turned to, to Maurice and went, let's go. And you were like, that is ridiculous. It's kind of like, going like, come on, what are you doing? Like, it's just, it, was like, it didn't seem like an eight. Like, it needs to be a little bit more formal. So I talked to Andy. He was like, going, well, yeah, let's try and figure this out. And so he did, come. And it was like, it was all the difference. But it was like you're figuring out where it kind of works and not. But then the apes' voices you should talk to because that you really did play with how much is the actor, how much is, and, and pitching and all kinds of stuff. And the gorillas, too. And the well, gorillas, we, yeah. I mean, the best example is really Maurice uh, because Maurice is portrayed by this wonderful actress, uh, Karen Conneval, who uh, it has become an orangutan expert, one who goes to orangutan conventions and <laughs> knows all the primatologists. I don't know about conventions. No, I, mean, I don't know what you would call no, it. No, she like, goes to the zoo. She literally. No, but she's, she does. No, well, she, she does do that too. Yeah. But she literally <laughs> paints with orangutans. The I mean, she and that's not a convention. That's at yeah. the zoo. But no, she, she goes and hangs out with the orangutans. But she also is highly respected among she the is. primatologists because she knows so much about orangutan behavior. She and sort of is an orangutan. She, she, <laughs> I don't mean that in any negative way. She's like a, a method actor who Absolutely. Does, is an orangutan. It's astonishing. And, and it's, I think it's kind of like her yoga or her spiritual uh, practice is, to, is sure. to learn as much as she can about orangutans. And she is an expert on orangutan behavior. And it, the way they carry themselves, the way they move. And she did this. It was almost by accident, I guess, on Rise that she happened into this role. But she ended up becoming, she is just a genius about how she does this. And she has increased her skill as time has gone by. And in this film, she did the vocalizations for the character so well. And, you know, Matt is always. You know, as he, as you can tell, he wants authenticity, he wants the emotion of the characters, and he works on that with the actors on the set. And once he's happy with it and says, okay, print that take, you know, he wants to preserve that emotion as much as is possible. And so we go through the movie and we look as sound people at the opportunities to make it better uh, in some way. And so we go through, and I was thinking, oh, well, you know, the orangutan is so big, and we need to pitch her voice down or replace it with a male voice, at least. Which is mostly what we did on the last film. Yeah, exactly. Actually, we, your voice is the yeah. one line that he's, right? Is it yeah. run you? Run. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> In the first film, Maurice has one word, and that's when you realize Maurice has the ability to speak and in this film Maurice has a few sentences and a, and a word and he and the character I just love the character of Maurice and so I just want Maurice to sound exotic because orangutans have the most exotic voices of, of any of these primates and to be warm and emotive and which is or Maurice Maurice is the most compassionate and warm uh, character of the apes. You know, uh, I mean, Caesar obviously has compassion for his band of apes and, you know, his responsibility, but he's kind of a hard 
he's a hard man on himself, and um, you know he's uh, he's kind of more taciturn in a way. Maurice is always ready to embrace the next you know character who comes along and is a friend. Anyway, uh, so I spent a lot of time thinking about Maurice. <laughs> Maurice is uh, is her voice in this film, unlike in the last one, where her voice almost doesn't appear, to be honest. But in this film, we used her voice almost, ex whenever she uttered a sound, it's in the movie. And we augmented it with the sounds of actual orangutans, um, wherever that would contribute the exotic quality or this is the girth. Or and the then you emotion. pitched it in a particular way by doing, you guys worldized it in a certain way. Right. We pitch shifted her voice tiny increments, and then we added a resonant quality to add the chest and the size to her body. It was nearly the end of the mix, I think, and we realized yeah. that the, the missing piece of making, you know, Karen's not a very big woman. She's a, she's a pretty small lady, and so she doesn't have a big chest like an orangutan. So <laughs> no matter how far down we ever pitched her voice, it would never have that kind of rich... And the more that we pitched her, the more that we lost the detail in her voice that made her right. performance emotional. And one of the things that happened was when, I, when we were shooting the last scene, Maurice was not supposed to speak the lines at the end of the movie, for those of you who saw the movie. As Caesar's dying, for those of you who haven't seen the movie, I just read it for you. There's Maurice again sleeping. As Caesar's sleeping. Depends on how it does in home video. No, um, <laughs> as Caesar is, uh, is, is passing, Maurice um, wants to comfort him, and, and, and there's an urgency that comes where, you know, Maurice is sort of the purest, and in a way, he's holding on to a bit of his um, connection to what it means to be an ape, and so to use human language is something that he doesn't really do. Um, he does it with the girl, because he has a relationship with the girl, like he, they, they kind of, he kind of takes her under his wing. But here he can see that it feels like it was too important. And as we were shooting, um, she was supposed to just sign. Karen was supposed to sign. And the first take wasn't very, it just wasn't right. And I was like, oh, this is not going to work because the emotion's going to come from the struggle that it comes to articulate those words. And so I walked up to her, and without my saying anything, I was like, Karen, she goes, you think I should say it? <laughs> I do. She goes, I think the same thing. It was a really weird thing. And I was like, I think you're right. And her performance was amazing. It was heartbreaking. Everyone was crying on the set. It was incredible. And the challenge was that I'm going, so what are we going to do now? She's just spoken. She's this woman. She's not an orangutan. The last movie, it was Doug going, run. And <laughs> so, which I can't even do. Um, and so it was like, how's that going to work? And we kept trying to pitch her, and we kept losing the emotion. And so then they came upon this idea that it didn't have just to do with pitch, which we did semitone here down a little bit but that it also had to do with this resonance, and that was the big key. It gave, even though it's her voice, she has this resonance that makes it sound like she has a bigger yeah. chest. Yeah. And, and the other thing we did in that scene is we added breaths and even crying, which she added. She as came in and did it, yeah. Right, that was uh, which amazing. Which really, really helped to tie the words, which were existing kind of in a vacuum, together yeah. and, and with the emotion of the scene. Yeah. So and, we, then, uh, and then you've got orangutan noises at the end. At the very end. Yeah. So Will, um, you brought this clip, but also it has production first, is that right? Oh yeah, so this is, a, this is a little clip, it's a before and after of when Maurice first meets Nova in the cabin. Oh cool. And you'll see, you'll see Karen with the dots on her face and wearing pajamas, cool. and then you'll hear exactly what was recorded on the set. 
And then you'll hear the final mix, which will have Doug's processed and augmented version of Karen's voice. But you'll hear it's, it's, it is the same performance, but it hopefully feels like an actual orangutan. This is the scene too, which has the uh, waves in the background, right? Yeah. And that nice break after the, yeah. all the thematic yeah. music. There was an amazing thing that happened between the second and third movies, which is that Doug had uh, Doug had found all these amazing orangutan sounds to put in the movie in Dawn, and had sort of expanded the language of Maurice from the first film. And Karen picked up on that. And between the second and third film, she came back to set with a whole new vocabulary <laughs> of her own based on what we had done to her character in the prior film. So it, it, as you can see, she's, she's doing an approximation of the actual orangutan sounds when she's on set with Matt, which makes our job so much. so much easier because then it she's already making the right faces and the, the body's moving the right way and well the, the animation that you're seeing is actually done to exactly the good thing about it is in the last movie Doug found some really magical sounds and it really kind of gave a special quality to Maurice it had that exotic thing you're talking about mm. but um, what was so great about this is because she was doing them when the animation was done it was done to what she was doing and yeah. it it's funny because we tried replacing some of them in subtle ways. He would take things and put it literally in the rhythm of what she had done. And yet, it still wasn't quite the same as blending in and using hers as the through line because the animation that you're seeing in the mouth is literally her going... And so the lips are doing what Karen did. Yeah. And it's, this, it's, this scene is... Uh, this is an example of that in, in the scene where she's yeah. doing the thing with her finger. Yeah. And she's, you know, that, that sound is her. But just, you know, each one of those little utterances has a little sweetener on it that is mm -hmm. supporting her. Right. And then you're weaving in all these sounds that humans can't make, which is what's so yeah. cool. And there's a great sound that you came up with, which I think when you played it for her, she was like, what's that? But <laughs> there was a great thing when, when, when Maurice first holds the, the, uh, the, doll. the doll up and it goes, whatever. And I just felt like, I was like, that, whatever that is, that's just magic. That like, I just great. love it's that. A, it's a weird sound. And that's part of, like, I really go for those weird sounds for Maurice. Yeah. Because, you know, he's so, he's so exotic looking. I mean, he's from Borneo. <laughs> Jumping ahead later into the film, much later, there's just like the beginning of the film, there's uh, one sound, music, your direction, picture, all kind of align. And this one um, with the scene of the big avalanche. And, and I guess there's, there's music cues that I think to me are don't, it's, it's a really powerful scene of what's happening, but it's really powerful in the sense of dynamically what's happening because you feel the power of this avalanche that's proceeding, so uh, I guess, I'm just assuming everyone's seen the film, basically. I gotta say, I didn't ruin the movie anymore, because you're about to ruin the movie anyway. So. <laughs> but the thing is, is there's a lot of quiet moments in this film, but when you do get loud, it's intentional. Wait, this is the loudest thing in the whole movie, isn't oh, it? Yeah. Get ready. <laughs> so, well, that By the way, but also with some incredible, I don't know where you got the film yeah. from, but there's some stuff that's incredibly quiet, which then sets off how insanely loud it is. Right. Well, this is mostly loud. But <laughs> you chose just the loud. Okay, all right. But actually, hurt so them. You'll, you'll get all the loud, horrible stuff, and then you'll get some beautiful score from my Keenan. Okay. <laughs> Taking us out, the promised land. Um, but you know, this was one of those things, kind of like when we did Cloverfield, whatever that was, 10 years ago, that 
Matt knew, I think, from the beginning that you didn't want score in this scene. And he pitched it to me like that, you know, basically from the director's cut onwards. And said, okay, it's got to be really cool and it's got to really work because there's no music. Which is, you know, as a sound designer, it's like, that's like, you know, puppy chow. But and it's we had no, no avalanche. Yeah, and we had nothing to look at. Again, <laughs> before there was what Weta did, and what Weta did is amazing. I mean, they did, they did an incredible thing because we were going to set off a, a controlled avalanche and then it was like, they were like, no, you don't have to do that. We can create a simulation. And they did. It was insane. But much of where we were shooting on the ground was real. But the stuff when you look up is not real. But we didn't have that till the very end because they knew that was going to be hard. So Will was creating what all this was all the way along the way and it was taking a life of its own and then at the last minute suddenly we got the effects in and he's like oh i gotta change some things <laughs> right. it was crazy well and there was also sort of trying to figure out how, to, how does it seem like this function to you know put my music hat on for a second and say okay if i was scoring this what am i trying to make people feel with this whole thing yeah. so we found that you, you really kind of, instead of just kind of going up and then staying up, you kind of had to figure out a way to go up and then back a little bit, and then up and then back a little bit, and then up and then back a little bit. So as you're building tension, 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 with these little moments of release in between. And the whole thing's only about a minute, a minute and a half long, but we really had to be careful to not just go pedal the metal the whole way because it would stop meaning anything. And some people still think it's too loud. Uh, uh, remember? <laughs> <laughs> like, no, no, there should be that loud. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's, it's a thing in the movie by choice. I mean, yeah. we, we made we sort of tried to keep a little gas in the tank for for this, yeah. so that by the time we got to this, it felt elemental and overwhelming. So hopefully, it doesn't hurt. <laughs> <laughs> chance to open up to any uh, questions you guys might have. how many times I've been mixing a movie that he's done the music for and I get to that moment I'm waiting for the orchestra to go <laughs> on the big explosion and it just goes quiet and then I go <laughs> and it's like thank you <laughs> I grew up I, I grew up loving movies I grew up making movies all my life uh, super 8 movies regular 8 movies and I went to film school as well so I have this I get what you're doing. I totally get respect and love it. And I was obsessed, you know, growing up as many as many of us were with what Ben Burke did for these movies. So this idea of what what sound does for movies, you know, when I, I go into something knowing it's 
not about me. It's about that up there. So, yeah. And I think by the same token, it's I, I I'm there's a lot of sound guys uh, who who you know get uptight about music and you know well, there's so much music and why is it here and it's getting in the way of this beautiful sound work but you know the thing is music does these things with movies that we can't really do very well with with, with sound effects so you really need both I mean that's why movies are such a rich experience you have all these different art forms that are coming together to make this really enjoyable piece of entertainment um, and music is just so moving you know I I love movie music in particular. I mean, I'm the guy who had, you know, all the movie soundtracks and all that stuff. And I still, in my car, listen to movie soundtracks, including, I just, I actually just ordered Ratatouille on, on, on LP. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, I get stuff stuck in my head all the time. And anyway, I'm always, I always leave the dialogue on whenever I'm, whenever I'm working on sound effects, because for the same reasons, like, why make a cool sound moment if it's stepping on the dialogue, because it's like, then it's just gonna die, yeah. right? So what's the point? And um, you know, we're trying to make a movie and not just a series of effect stems and music stems and all that. So um, one thing I can say, maybe from a more craft point of view, is that I do try to stay aware of a spectral balance. Um, for example, the waterfall scene, I try to load my contribution toward the low end because there was a lot of movement and interesting stuff happening in the high end for what Michael was doing. So I try to kind of, you know, tailor things not only to hand off, you know, from beat to beat in terms of what you're hearing, but also to hand off spectrally, you know, so you're maybe favoring one part of the spectrum versus the other. We like each other. <laughs> yeah, right here. Uh, can I ask uh, Michael, how many stems you provided to William? If you remember. Well, uh, yeah. I, uh, well, when we um, record, we I always record with everyone in the same room. You know, it's always everyone in the same room together. We don't I don't do separate like string pass or this pass. I want the sound of everyone. Now, having said that, we have enough microphones in the room where we can give stems of. We can actually give reverb stems. Stems. We can give a percussion stem. We can give an orchestra stem. Um, and uh, and a, if there are any synth elements in there, we can do that as well. Um, and that way, depending when we're on stage, you can you have some some uh, mobility within the within the mix of the, the final that we give that we hand over. Or George, you know, or George, you know, the guitars are always separate or things like that. Um, pianos and keys, we try to, but essentially they're all part of that master mix. You know, um, they're not recorded <laughs> separately or anything. And in some cases, even if you lower the orchestra, you still may hear a little bit of it in the bleed from the, the other instruments that are still there as well. So it's not like you can just mute it and it goes away. Um, but, so. you know, what's interesting about that from a, mix, a mixer point of view is there's a cohesion in the way an orchestra plays when they're all together. Yeah. And in the way that it sounds when it hits the stage, there's a richness to it that you, I, you know, a lot of modern <coughs> film scores are delivered in sections, yeah. brass, strings, percussion, that kind of stuff, and um, and you'll you'll occasionally split out percussion or something. Yeah, if we need to do so, there's a complicated thing which I go, okay, there's probably going to be some scene where we we will do that. Yeah, but you know, I think it's also partly the way that Michael writes that he's not he's not doing wet blanket writing over everything. That there's a lot of thought and moments, and, and that it, it makes it easier to contend with everything's coming basically through you know, as one piece. The instrument, the, the, 
the orchestra is basically a unified instrument. Yeah. And and it really does change the way it sounds. Yeah. Once you start separating everything, suddenly it doesn't sound like an orchestra anymore. Yeah. You you put the orchestra in a non-traditional position in the room too. For this film, I did. Yes, I did. I had I instead of having violin one, violin two, violas and cellos, what we did was put cellos and and basses along the back and put uh, violin one, violin two, and then uh, violas in the middle. And then uh, we split the brass and we we in, in Remember the last one we had two harps, so we put a harp on either side, the same with the pianos. Uh, so yeah, we're all, you know, on a film like this, it's always fun to kind of mix it up and see. And you may not notice it, but you might feel it. You might feel there's something slightly different. So that's great question. Yeah, right here. Um, you were saying, Matt, that you, sometimes you have a, when you're writing out a scene, you have a specific um, thought of music or kind of tone. What, what's, what's kind of that conversation like? Do you, do you say, okay, I want a lot of, drums or is it more string or, or do you kind of leave it open with Not really i mean you know when i'm writing i try to be in an emotional state we were talking about this earlier but there was actually when i was doing let me in and working with you guys we did so many movies together that i literally went up to skywalker the ranch where they were all the sound was done on, on the movies that we were doing then and um wrote in a room to a piece of music and actually doug and will created a um a sound. I was like, I was like, I really want to get into a kind of like a an atmospheric mode. So I listened to this piece of music um, by this this artist Arvo Part, and then they created these um, endless loops of kind of like wind sounds along with it, and it put me into this vibe. And then so I was writing to music, but then also I I don't usually write music unless it's a source cue into a script, but I do write sound because I do really think in that way. And then you know. We temp it or whatever, but Michael does what Michael does, and then it becomes, there's a great week where I get to go over to Michael's house, which is the craziest place on earth, because he's got it, he, it's, his, it's crazy. Um, he literally has, in his new office, he has the, uh, the Ark of the Covenant, a perfect uh, duplicate, which when you push a button, the music plays, dry ice comes out, it lifts up, and it's a bar. Um, <laughs> that's true. But anyway, that's, just, that's just one of the crazy things. Um, but in any case, so it's an amazing thing to go over there. That was a secret. That, was, that? that was meant to be shared. <laughs> well, no, I think you would share it. Um, yeah. But anyway, the, the thing that you do is you go over there for a week, and he has these sketches that he's made. And, um, and, and you know, we've been living with temp for months. And, and much, if not almost all, of that temp music is, is to some degree, of Michael's music. His music editor will sometimes layer in Michael and then put something over it. Or I'll have an idea from something that I'm thinking just as a, as a kind of placeholder. And then Michael watches the movie and then just becomes, like, just creates this thing and it sketches all this stuff. And I come over and then we just react. And it's an amazing week where yeah, Sometimes we'll sit and uh, well, play a scene for him and you'll be like, what did you do? <laughs> what did you do? And sometimes and I'll go, what I, did you do? I, well, I think I'm in trouble. <laughs> oh, that's what I mean. Oh, that's yeah. what you're trying to say. Yeah, yeah. Because I love it so much. Yeah. yeah. No, I, he's just it's incredible. I mean, it's like, the thing about it is, is like what I'm saying, and I think these guys in, in all their ways remind me of actors. My whole thing is to try and tell a story through the story and specifically through character and emotion. And so when I'm thinking of sound, it's because of the emotion that it creates. And certainly that is the whole idea behind the music. And to work with Michael is to work with Andy Serkis, except somebody who communicates instead of with words, he communicates with music. And I remember 
that on dawn i came in and he was like he's like i'm going to play you a suite i created a suite it's got all the themes that i think i'm going to draw from and he came in and he played it for me and it was it was on you know synth but he's got some samples and stuff so it sounds like an orchestra and um and it just blew me away and i started crying and i was like michael like you made me cry and you said well i was crying when i wrote it and i said i could tell like it was very personal it was like dealing with an actor and he said do you think it's right for the movie and I said, because at that point, the movie doesn't look like the movie. It looks like, um, well, like what you saw with those, those actors. So you're getting a hint of the movie, but it was my first one. So I was looking at it going like, I don't know, but I can tell you this. If it's not the movie, we need to change the movie because that music is the kind of movie I want to make. Yes, sir. Any more questions? Yeah. Um, this is more for Will and Doug. Are there any favorite plugins that you guys use? It is the best nerdy question. <laughs> you know, well, you know, Matt and Doug and I all love Reverb. We lo and we love Reverb for, I think, what it can bring to the sense of uh, authenticity, actually. Even though it's added, yeah. it, it can suggest this, uh, a real space, you know. Um, and it can and also, often it'll unify disparate sounds. Like when right. you're creating apes, they might be recorded in many different environments. And like some of the ones we were talking about, the zoo, yeah. those environments are too reverberant maybe for another space or whatever. It's like somehow it's kind of the thing that sometimes can bridge things together. Yeah. I mean, yeah. yeah. And so, you know, Altiverb is one of our favorites because it's very, uh, you know, it's, it's all real spaces. It's all, you know, it's, it's real. They're real samples of real places. Um, and, and they have idiosyncrasies. They're not perfect reverbs. You know, they have weirdnesses and they have weird resonances sometimes. And, and sometimes that's actually what you want. You know, you want to have some, some bumps, I think. Um, and then, you know, there's, there's other various plugins that, you know, impart a lot of character. I personally, I'm a big fan of distortion. Um, tasteful distortion, you know, saturation. Um, you know, so much of what is in movies now is this perfectly clean, you know, very perfectly recorded stuff. And I think a lot of the movies we all grew up on was they were recorded on analog tape and they were dubbed on analog tape and they were mixed on analog consoles and all these things imparted a certain warmth and, and also there's there's a certain expressiveness in distortion because you can suggest that something is louder than it is even. Like for example, the avalanche a lot of things in that scene were processed to make them sound almost like they were so loud that they were overwhelming the, the microphone. Um, and it's another kind of realism too, wouldn't you say? Like it yeah. sort of makes it sound when things are too clean, it yeah. doesn't feel like if you were recording a sound that loud, it would oh. overload. Or something. Right, exactly. Yeah. So it gives it this sense of uh, of realism, uh, even though it's completely fake. <laughs> and totally artificial. Yeah, done in a you know dark room across the lot. Um, but uh, you know, I think that, that that's something I'm always looking for in sound work is expressiveness and how can sound suggest something more than what you're seeing and even what you're hearing. That it's sort of the sounds themselves have a a life to them. You know, and I think one of the ways that I often find is to do that is to mangle them in some way that that makes them feel gritty or warm or you know squishy or whatever it is you know and sometimes i'll do parallel compression and things like that on guns for example that's another thing that if you've ever shot a gun or been around a gun getting shot it has this incredible uh air pressure you know you feel it in your body and that's a thing that unless we're playing things way 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 too loud you're just not going to get in the movie theater 
So what you can do is 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 try to manipulate the sound so that it sounds like your ears are kind of collapsing from being too loud. And you can do that without making it too loud, but still make it sort of feel the same way. So that's the kind of, I do a lot of that kind of thing to, to manipulate sound and make it have a more life to it. Thank you so much. That was awesome. Well, I, I just want to thank these guys for coming out tonight. Matt Reeves, Michael Cicero, Rick Isles.